Thank you, Susan, for that warm <laughs> introduction. Well, uniforms and fashion in general have been used to communicate many things over time. Uh, it can communicate the position somebody holds, maybe their vocation they have, the job that they fulfill. Uh, it can communicate what team somebody is on, a sports team, something like that. So if you were to look out your window and see a man walking up to your house in a short sleeve, collared, uh, brown shirt with brown shorts, I think it's safe to assume that the UPS guy is at your house, right, to deliver packages. Um, if you were to see a young man with a buzz cut and camo fatigues on out in public, I think it would be safe to assume that he serves in our armed forces. He serves in our military defending our country. And then if you're out watering your front lawn one Saturday morning and you see two gentlemen walking up in white collared shirts, black skinny ties, and black nameplates, I think we can make the assumption that they are going to want to talk to us about the Book of Mormon, right? Well, in our passage this week, we see God give direction on the construction of a uniform of sorts. And this uniform is going to be worn by the priests that are going to serve him in the ceremonial ways. And sometimes I think we forget as Christians that we too have been given a uniform to wear. We've been given things to do. And when we, we don't use that rightly, when we don't use that uniform rightly, when we even neglect to use it, there's a ripple effect. But when we do what God has called us to do, it can make all the difference. Well, we're going to be looking at just five verses today in Exodus 28. Exodus 28, verses 1 through 5. So read along with me. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Well, at this point in Exodus, Moses is still up on Mount Sinai. He has been up there for quite the time, and he's been receiving all of this instruction from the Lord. We've seen him being handed down the moral law and the Ten Commandments, and now he's receiving information and instruction on the ceremonial laws and the materials that would be used to go through with these ceremonial laws. We've already read about, for instance, the tabernacle and how that was to be constructed and the materials that were to be used to make even those curtains that would surround the tabernacle. We've seen the Ark of the Covenant and what that's supposed to look like, that it's supposed to be made from the acacia wood and with the gold overlay and the gold rings that the poles were to go through. They were given, he was given specific instructions, measurements, materials, um, and for things to look just a certain way. And the same care was taken from God when he talks about the garments that the priests would be wearing when they served him as priests. And in particular, the high priest position. Now this position was a very, very important one. Um, it was gonna be Moses, Aaron's brother, who was gonna be called to be the high priest, and then his sons would serve under him as priests as well. And his duties were 
pretty big. Uh, he was responsible for handling all of the sacrifices from the, for the Israelites, handling the uh, sin offerings, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, the uh, peace offerings. He was responsible for handling all of those. Uh, but his other responsibilities would include uh, directing the hearts of the Israelites towards God, keeping them focused on God as their one and only God, as the first commandment commands us in the, first, in the Ten Commandments. And he'd also be responsible for directing them in the Ten Commandments and helping them follow those laws and be obedient to God. But he had one big day of the year, and that was the Day of Atonement. And in Hebrew, this is, uh, this is the Yom Kippurim in Hebrew, and we see that on our fall calendar every year because the Jewish people still celebrate this holiday. It's considered one of the high holidays. And it was the day that the high priest would go into the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, and he would atone or pay for the sins of the Israelites over that entire previous year. And he would do this through various ceremonies, the sprinkling of the blood on the altar and such, and that would atone for their sins. So his main duty, we can see, is to be a mediator of sorts. He was an in-between, between the Israelites and God. That was his main job, if you were to kind of sum it all up. So you can imagine that God needed the best man for the job. I mean, someone who's going to be you know, above reproach, someone who's just going to be solid. And we see in verse 1, God chooses Aaron, the brother of Moses. Let's read Exodus 28, verse 1 again. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. We see God chooses Aaron and his sons from among the people. We know this is a big group of people, the Israelites. They're all out in the wilderness together. This is thousands of people, and yet God plucks them out of that group and chooses them for this role. He chooses them for service. He set them apart for this very, very important role that they would play in the ceremonial law. And if you're a Christian in the room, he did the same for you. God chose you. And for that, we should be grateful. So point number one on your note outline is thank God he chose you. Thank God he chose you. Well, much like Aaron and his sons, God chose them in his sovereign plan. This was just part of his big plan. Let's read verse one again. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. We don't see God give a reason for why he chose this family. And we know that from here on out, every priest would be coming from this family. Their sons would be priests, and their sons would be priests, and their sons would be priests. But God doesn't give us a reason. We don't see... Uh, him giving them the option for the Israelites to have an election of sorts. You know, cast ballots. Who do you want to be priests? And the Israelites said, Aaron and his sons. That, wasn't, that didn't take place. He didn't ask for volunteers. He didn't you know, say, hey, Israelites, who wants to be my priests? And Aaron and his sons raised their hand. That's not how it went down. And he definitely didn't choose them because of what they've done and what they would do, right? He didn't choose them on works. And we know this because at this time, as Moses is receiving this instruction, where's Aaron? Aaron's down at the foothill of the mountain with the Israelites. And if we've read on in Exodus, and particularly we get to Exodus 33, we see that the Israelites are growing impatient. They think Aaron has abandoned them, therefore they think God has abandoned them, and now they desire something to worship. And so what does Aaron do? He makes the golden calf, right? He makes the golden calf. 
he is instrumental in what most consider the stain on the book of Exodus. If you were to say, what's the biggest uh-oh in Exodus? It's the golden calf, and Aaron's responsible for it. His one, two, of, two of his sons later on in Leviticus 10, as they're serving as priests, they give unauthorized offerings to the Lord, and the Lord literally consumes them in fire. So we can see that these people, they're, they're not perfect, they're far from it. And this is the pattern that we see in scripture over and over again, because God is constantly choosing people who are flawed, and in many cases, extremely flawed, to hold big roles and to play a big part in his plan. People like David, people like Saul, we see it over and over again. And this should point us to the need for someone who is perfect, which is Jesus, right? Jesus would be the great high priest, the perfect priest. Um, He would be the one to come. And when he came, he wouldn't need any special garments to make him holy because he is holy. In fact, on his day of atonement, the day that he paid for everyone's sins on the cross, he was wearing nothing at all, right? Well, the works of Aaron and his sons had nothing to do with being chosen, and neither did ours. I, I know... Sometimes in our sinful flesh, we'd like to think that there was something attractive about us, uh, something that stood out to God, something that made us shiny in his eyes, and so he chose us. Uh, But really, scripture puts this one to death because in Isaiah 64, 6, it talks about our good works and how God views our good works, and he calls them polluted garments. It's that same word that's found in our passage today, garments, clothing, covering, Our good works are polluted. They're dirty. I think the NIV calls it the uh, filthy rags. So as Christians, we should know we did nothing to deserve to be chosen by God for salvation in Christ. In fact, even if you were to base it on sheer timing alone, there's nothing we could have done. If you look at Ephesians, Ephesians 1, verse 4 through 5, it puts it this way. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. I'm sure we've read that many times and kind of gloss over that one phrase, before the foundation of the world, but let's think about that for a minute. In Genesis 1, before God said, let there be light, you were chosen. I mean, that's that's big. That should make our brain hurt. (laughs) It makes mine. The God of the universe, the God of creation, he loved you enough to set you apart and to choose you for redemption before the foundation of the world. And if we have that high view of God, if we um, have that high view of his sovereign plan, then our gratitude should never wane. It should never wane. We should often reflect on how God drew us to him, how he gave us ears to hear, how he lifted the veil and gave us eyes to see, a new heart, and eventually a new life in Christ. When we do our prayer time every day and we get to the thankfulness part, it should be led always with, thank God you chose me for salvation. That should be our lead. Thank God. Well, God doesn't choose us for salvation and say, be on your way, loved one, be on your way. Uh, He chooses us for salvation, but then it's time to get to work. He chooses us for service as well. Um, Like Aaron and his sons, he chose us for that service so we could take part of his sovereign plan. And being part of God's plan, that should excite us. That should motivate us. That should get us really excited. 
And we each can serve God in very unique ways because we are each very uniquely made. God's not only good to, uh, to choose us for this important role, but he equips us as well. He gives us things to help us serve him. Let's read on in, tw- in uh, Exodus 28, verses 2 through 3. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. Here we see God has teed up people ready and willing to make this clothing. He's not asking Aaron to make the clothing. He says, no, I've, I've already got people. I've already, I've already equipped them. They're ready. They've got the skills that I've given them, and they're, and they're going to make these garments. And then he directs as to where the skill came from, right? It came from God. In verse 3, again, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of fill. A spirit of skill, I'm sorry. Uh, the skill was, was God-given. It was nothing that they manifested on their own. So when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai and he seeks out these people, you have to imagine that they're expecting it. When, when he walks up and says, I need you to make these clothing, they're going to say, absolutely, because we have the skills to do it. They're going to be ready and willing. And while you may not have been gifted as a, as a seamstress or a fashion designer, <laughs> You've been given gifts. Every single one of you has been given gifts. So point number two is realize God has gifted you. Realize God has gifted you. God gives gifts uh, to his children for his purpose and his glory. And he does it, um, like we said, uniquely. He does it differently. And even if your gifts fall within a a broader range of gifts, you are still very unique. And we can see this just around the church. If you look around and and look at our worship team on on the weekends, they're all gifted with the gift of music, right? They would have to have that gift to be up here on this stage. But yet there's somebody playing guitar, there's somebody singing, there's somebody playing uh, the piano. Uh, Some people can play multiple instruments, some only one, but they are all gifted musically, but so unique. I was speaking with a friend last week and just commenting on just the array of teachers we have here at Compass that teach our women and just how everyone's been gifted, obviously, with the gift of teaching, but how unique each teacher is. And if you've been around Compass for a while and you've been in women's Bible study for a while and you see that, you know, Stephanie Schwartz is up next week, while you don't know what she's going to bring from the text, you know what her style's going to be. You know what kind of things she's probably going to draw out of it. Uh, same thing with Carlin or Natalie Winter. You start to get to know these teachers and how uniquely gifted each and every one of the, them are. And that's a neat thing. And the Apostle Paul, he describes this, uh, this variety of gifts, and he aligns it to an, an analogy of the body and how our bodies are made up of all different parts. In Romans 12, he speaks to this. Romans 12, verses 4 through 6. For as in one body we have many members, the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. He gives this analogy again in 1 Corinthians 12, and we'll be looking at that a little later. But we can see that Paul really appreciates the uniqueness of the gifts that God gives his people. So the important thing is that we know what our gifts are. And if you're sitting here today and saying, I really don't know how God has gifted me, or you're thinking you don't have any gifts that are really useful, 
Well then, let's start to do some investigative work. I have uh, three tips to give you to try and figure this out if things are a little foggy in this area of your life. Um, the first place we should go is like what our scripture tells us to go today is to the source of our gifts. Where did we get our gifts? We got our gifts from God. And in Exodus 28.3, he says, you shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill. So the first thing you need to do, do is go to God. Go to God and ask God, how have you gifted me? What have you given me that can be useful to you? Just like David did in Psalm 139, when he goes to God and says, search me, God, and know my heart and see if there be any grievous way in me, he, he says, reveal my sin. We can go to God and say, reveal my gifts, Lord. And he's not gonna keep you in the dark. He's not gonna make it difficult. He's not gonna make you solve a riddle or solve a puzzle to figure out what he's given you because he's given it to you because he wants you to use it. He's not gonna keep you in the dark. So go to God, the source and the gift giver. Second place you can go is to a friend or a ministry director or a pastor that knows you well. Um, ask them, what, what do you see in me? You know, how can I be used? Where do you see my strengths? And you might be surprised as to what others see in you as gifts that you would not consider a gift. So friends, ministry leaders, pastors can be extremely helpful in guiding us down this path. And lastly, you can look to your own passions. What gets you excited about ministry? What are you naturally good at? Everyone is naturally good at something, right? Maybe you're just really good at organization and planning. Uh, maybe you're real techie. You know, you like to work with computers or uh, you know, cameras or, you know, media, things like that. Or maybe you just really love encouraging others. You're just a natural at coming up with words of encouragement, whether it be the written word or the spoken word, and that's just something you're naturally good at. Look at those things, because that's where you've been gifted. Well, what if you do know your gifts, but you're just, you just wish you had other gifts? <laughs> you look at your sister's gifts that God's given her and go, well, I, I wish I had what she has, right? Well, it's important that we be content with what we've been given and not covet the gifts of others, because God had a purpose in what he gave us, a specific purpose. And that purpose will trump any of our desires and our thoughts of what we think we should be doing. And maybe we're tempted to think that our gifts are just not that important. Uh, they're too behind the scenes, they're, they're dispensable. I mean, they just don't matter. Well, the Apostle Paul, again, in his body analogy, addresses this in 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 21 through 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Indispensable means valuable. It can't be thrown away. It can't be set aside. It's needed. There's a need. There's a need for every single gift. Uh, it reminds me of... Um, I call it the shape box. <laughs> I don't know what it's really called, but it's a toy that most kids have had. I mean, it's been around since I was a kid, so it's at least 40 years old, but it's a box. It's a red box. It comes with these blocks that are shaped, and then the yellow cap on it has the cutouts. You guys know what toy I'm talking about? Okay, yes, shaking heads. Okay, the shape box. That's what I'm going to call it. And when my kids were at the developmental stage to play with the shape box, I would get it out, and naturally they would pick up, let's say, the square block. 
and they would put it on the, the star cutout and, and start to kind of push it and push it. And kids at that age, instead of maybe saying, well, maybe I'll try another shape cutout. No, no, no. They continue, you know, to push it on the star. And my oldest especially, who has struggles with a temper, would get purple. I mean, he's so frustrated. And so I would take his hand, and we'd go over to the square cutout, and we'd drop the block in. And he would see how it would go in with ease, and it was satisfying. And over time, he learned which shapes went into which cutout. So we can kind of be like that when we're trying to force having gifts that we were not given, when we're trying to serve in ways that we were not meant to serve. It just doesn't work. And there's peace and there's satisfaction and there's ease when we're doing what, we need to, what we're supposed to be doing and we are where we belong. So know your gifts. Start by asking God, ask friends, search your own passions and what you're good at and be content with what God's given you. Well, let's look back at our text again today. Exodus 28, verse 4 through 5. These are the garments thou they, that they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So here God's giving the specifics of what these skillful people would be making. These six pieces that when brought together would form the garments of the high priest. And it would be to make them holy so that they were able to serve. Everything leads up to service. Everything. And if we've been chosen by God and gifted by God, then we need to use the gifts that he's given us to serve him. So point number three, use the gifts God has given you. Use the gifts God has given you. Well, this clothing that the high priest wore, it stood out. It, it, this was not the fashion of the time. Uh, there was no one else dressed the way the high priest was dressed. When he walked down the street in this clothing, you can imagine that everyone turned their heads. Uh, his clothing was made out of uh, fine materials, precious stones and fine materials. We see in our verse 5 here, they shall receive gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linens. This was not the standard materials that clothing was made of at that time. And as you read on in Exodus 28, you can see even more detail that was given to these pieces and what the significance of them was. I mean, it was something truly spectacular. Even at the point that there were, there were bells hanging from the trim with pomegranates so that when he walked, it, it rang, it hurt. He had an audible clothing. I mean, you could hear it, right? Is anyone in here wearing audible clothing today? This definitely stood out. In essence, Aaron was dressed in, in holy garments and he would be ready to serve because of these garments. And, and you are too. We are too. If you're a Christian in the room today, you have been chosen to be clothed in Christ. You've heard that phrase before, clothed in Christ. That we wear Christ. We're made holy by his sacrifice for us. And because of that, we're going to look different. We're going to stand out. We're going to be set apart. And one way we should stand out is by using the gifts God has given us. That's one big way that we can stand out. And if that doesn't motivate you, then becoming accountability from God should. Because God's going to hold us accountable to what he's given us. 
he's going to come back and circle back and say, what did you do with the gifts that I gave you? I mean, he does this with everything else, right? He does it with money. He gives us money. He wants us to be good stewards of our money and spend our money wisely and be giving to the church, and we're going to be held accountable to that. He does it with the roles he places us in. If you're a wife or a mother or a sister or a daughter or a friend, all of those roles, you're going to be held accountable to how you lived in those roles. And what we do with our gifts will be no exception. God's going to hold us accountable. And a familiar parable that kind of gets to the heart of this is found in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 speaks to the parable of the talents. This is a pretty familiar parable. And what it's about is that there's this master, and he gives, he has three servants, and he gives his servants uh, talents, or a kind of a sum of money. The first servant, he gives five talents, the second one, he gives two, and the third, he gives one talent. And then he leaves town for a while. And when he comes back, he comes back to the servants and wants to know, what, what did you do with my money? What did you do with the talents that I gave you? And the first servant comes back that, that had the five talents and shows him that, that he doubled the money, that he increased it because he was wise and he invested it, and now he's increased what was given to him. And we hear in Matthew 5, 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. That's how the master responds. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then the second one, who got the two talents, he also was wise and invested and, and made a return on that money. And he hears also, well done, good and faithful servant. And then he goes to the last servant, who got the one talent. And the last servant didn't invest it. He, didn't, he wasn't wise with it. He didn't increase its value. All he did was hide it away and kind of saved it. And now he's just giving it back to the master. And we hear this in Matthew 25, 26, when the master responds after seeing this. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. I mean, wicked means evil, slothful means lazy. Evil and lazy servant. Well, you might look at this scenario and say, well, you know, it's not fair. That first guy got five talents and the last guy only got one. I mean, he started out with more, right? But the fact is, is they all got talents. They all received something. And if you'll notice, even though the one with five and the one with two have different amounts that started with, that they started with, they both used them. And what did they both hear? The same response from the master. Well done, good and faithful servant. His response didn't change based on what they started with. His response was based on what they did with what they were given. God gives some more and some less. He puts some people in the spotlight. He puts some people behind the scenes. But he sees every single role as extremely valuable, and it's expected to be used. It just isn't an option. And we can be guilty of getting in the mindset of thinking that, you know, someone else will step up. Someone else will do that that has that gift. Or maybe you've believed the lie that, you know, you can't be useful at all, so why even try? Well, it's like you're out on a field and everyone's out on the field playing this game. And you have this valuable gift, this valuable asset for the game. And everyone's yelling from you from the field, come on, come on, we need you, we need you. And you're just standing there on the sidelines holding this valuable gift. And they need you. If we sit back and let the dust collect on the gifts God's given us, then we actually weaken the church. The church is weakened. We cannot grow if people aren't using the gifts God's given him. 
And that goes back to the analogy of the body, right? If you were missing a body part, inevitably your body would be weaker. I, I saw this on an ad, this ad that plays all the time on TV for the Wounded Warrior Project. It's a foundation that raises money for veterans who've been gravely injured in battle. Uh, these aren't broken bones. Uh, there's men that have been burned from head to toe, uh, men that are missing an arm or two arms, two legs. I mean, it's, it's really tragic. And what they do is they raise money for these, uh, these veterans and they build them these homes that are modified to accommodate for their disability. So the doors are wider, so wheelchairs can fit through, the, ca the countertops are lower, um, things kind of lower and raise, so that they can live in a house and, and be able to do all that they need to do, even with their handicap. It's, it's a great thing. And God can be glorified, right, in anyone's handicap, we know that. But the truth of the matter is, their body's weaker. It just is, they're missing limbs. Their body's weaker. If it weren't weaker, they wouldn't need the modified homes. That wouldn't be a need. We wouldn't be raising money for that if their bodies were at working at full capacity. Well, and each of us contributes our gifts for the greater good, the common good. It's a great thing. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4 through 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. So serving with our gifts isn't just for our benefit, but it's for the common good benefit. And what is that? You may be thinking, well, I serve for the common good. Uh, you know, I volunteer at my kid's school. I'm, I'm a den mom in Cub Scouts. Uh, I'm the, the little league team mom. I'm salt and light. I'm out there. Great. We need to be salt and light, but that's not the common good. The common good is the body of Christ. It's the church. We need to be serving the church. Being in a church like this, I feel like we talk about this often, being a highly committed participant um, our mission is to live out the Great Commission and to reach the lost with the gospel, and every single ministry post contributes to this, uh, whether it's filling goldfish into Dixie Cups for kidsmen, or um, serving in as, as an HFG host, or taking pictures for our website. Each and every ministry post is for the common good. And often on weekends, we hear the announcements of, of needs within the church, and I've noticed a pattern that they always preface it with something like this. If you have a heart for moms and motherhood, then, right? If you're handy with tools and fixing things, then, right? They, they, they specify the skills that are needed for these jobs that need to be done. Because while vacancies in ministries, it can cause a strain, and it does weaken the church, it's best to fill those vacancies with the right people, with the right skills, with the right gifts, so that they can be done well, and this, the church can be strengthened. So my question for you today is, how are you using your gifts? How would you rate yourself? If someone were to ask you today, where do you serve in the church? Where's your ministry post? Do you have an answer? If you don't, why not? What is keeping you from serving? Why are you on the sidelines? Is it that you don't know how you've been gifted? Let's go back to point two. Let's figure it out. Let's figure out how you've been gifted. Or maybe you just don't know where there are needs. Uh, what we just talked about, they make announcements here at church all the time. If you go to our website, there's a get involved button. 
And if you scroll down, there's a serve button, and all the ministries pop up that have needs. And if you click on one of those, a sign-up page pops up. It's super easy. So there's where you can find the needs. But I think probably the number one reason people give for not serving is, I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. You know, I, I work full-time, my kids soccer after school, our weekends are slammed, you know, my husband, this and that, and I just don't have time to serve. Well, I don't know how to put it gently, so I'm not. Then you're just too busy. Then you're just too busy, and something has to give. God would not choose you for salvation, choose you for service, equip you and give you these gifts, and then make your life too busy for you to use them. He wouldn't do that. So something's got to give. Something's got to go. Something has to be delegated to other people. Delegation is something that I've been working on this year, and it's a beautiful thing. Handing things off to other people to free up your time to serve the Lord in the church. Well, for those of you who are serving, who have a ministry post, maybe more than one, great. You guys can all get up and go. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we need to, as we serve, we need to search our hearts from time to time and check a few things. We need to kind of do a, do a check engine every now and then. Uh, first thing we need to check is our motives. Why are you serving? Why are you serving where you're serving? Okay. Um, is it because you enjoy the praise from others where you serve? You love those pats on the back? Or maybe uh, you like to be aligned or close to certain people within the church, so you serve in that ministry? Or maybe just all your friends serve there, so you, know, you, you might as well go over and, and serve there too. The only reason, the only motivation we should have for serving in a particular place where we're serving is because we want to be used by God with the gifts he's given us. If our motive is anything but that, then we're serving for the wrong motive. And what about your attitude? Uh, whether it's at home or church, I think we as women can agree that our attitudes make or break it, right? It can make or break it. Uh, oftentimes when we are, fall into selfishness and start looking at ourselves and focusing on ourselves, that's when in ministry the discouragement, the disappointment starts to creep in. And then inevitably a bad attitude will surface. And then we're serving with a bad attitude. And unfortunately, a bad attitude is very unattractive. So let's say you're serving at our upcoming extravaganza. It's one of our biggest outreach events that we have at church. And you're doing it with a bad attitude. And there's someone that's coming from the community, and they witness that, and they leave because of you. How tragic would that be, right? Because of a bad attitude. Well, when we serve with the focus that we're serving with our gifts and we're serving the Lord and his plans, our attitudes will inevitably be better. They'll be more positive. They'll be full of joy. Uh, and someone that's serving with joy, there's something attractive about that, right? I mean, maybe not physically attractive, but there's, there's spiritually attractive to that, to that person. It's going to attract people. I mean, you see someone literally, you know, like I said, filling cups <laughs> with the goldfish for kidsmen, but doing with, with joy, I mean, that is, that's a beautiful thing, no matter what you're doing. So check your attitude as you serve. And lastly, remember who you're serving. I know we know we serve God. We say it over, I'm serving God, I'm serving God. But do you really remember that? In our text today, Exodus 28, verse 4, says, They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. This is God speaking, me. And as that mediator role, 
one could think, well, you know, they're serving the Israelites, right? They're providing the service for the Israelites to be able to have access to God. Aren't they serving the Israelites? But God says, no, they're serving me. So no matter where we serve and who we report to when we serve, always remember that we ultimately report to God. He's the big boss. He's the ultimate boss. He has as part of his plan to bring his people into the kingdom for salvation, and he uses us for his glory and for our good and for the common good. And if we're serving with the gifts God's given us, we can have a front row seat to what he's doing in the lives of others and what he's doing in the church, and that should be exciting. It should be motivating. When I lived in Tallahassee for college, my, I was dating my husband, and uh, we went through a really small NASCAR phase, really small. And we were watching NASCAR on TV, and he was really into the cars and just the speed, and I remember him talking about the paddle shifters, whatever those are. Uh, I thought it was really cool to watch the pit stops because the pit stops were, I mean, truly amazing. If you've never watched racing, watching a pit stop is, is watching something that you don't believe humans could actually do. Uh, a pit crew is formed up of a group of guys, and each guy has one specific job one specific job. So the car pulls in, and one guy takes off the lug nuts of the, of the tire, another guy takes off the tire, another guy puts on the tire, another guy puts the lug nuts back on the tire, another guy's filling the gas tank, and then there's a guy standing in front of the car that when he sees that everything is done, he waves the car out, and it's back on the track. And they do this in all under three seconds. Anything over three seconds is considered a long pit. That's the term, long pit. And so, you know, you know, the driver, the car, very important in a race, obviously. It takes part, a huge part in the race. But there's a saying in racing. There's a saying in racing that goes like this. Races are won or lost in the pit. So while the driver has that important role, that pit crew has a vital role. I mean, when each member is doing his job and doing it well, it could add seconds to the clock that can make all the difference. It can advance that car down the raceway. And when we're doing what we have been called to do and doing it with the right motives and the right attitude and using the gifts that God has given us and being grateful that God has chosen us, then there's no telling what God will do. There's no telling what God will do with the church. Ephesians 4, verses 15 through 16 says this, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. God called you because he has a plan and he wants you to be a part of it. And he has given you the gifts to be used to serve him. So let's get dressed and serve. Let's pray. Lord, I just, uh, I thank you for this text today. And I just, uh, I pray it would motivate each and every one of us to look at the way we serve in a new light. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us would check our motives, check our attitudes. Lord, I pray that for discussion time today, for the women to be transparent and vulnerable uh, as to where they stand. This is an important thing with you, Lord. We know that you are going to hold us accountable, and it's something that you value. value. Please do not let any of us be left standing on the sidelines holding that gift. Lord, I just pray for the women today, and I thank you so much for them who take their time to come every Wednesday to study your word and be in your word and speak about your word with other women in the purpose to grow. In Jesus' name, amen.